Well, good morning to you all. And uh, thank you, Steve, uh, for your uh, warm welcome. It is great to be here and uh, for me uh, to be back, although I'm sure most of you will not recognize me, but for those of you, for those of you to whom it means something, uh, my wife Jenny sends her greetings. This is where uh, we made our church home for a couple of years while we were here uh, in Oxford. I'm going to say something just um, uh, briefly at the end about the, the table over there, if that's okay, Steve, and uh, some of the um, resources that are available and what was put on your chair. But for this morning, um, I want us to uh, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, or if you're one of those people who looks at their phone to do these things, uh, which is a bugbear of mine, but don't worry, I shan't be offended, um, then uh, uh, you can flick through to uh, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll read verses 16 through 21. Before we do that, let's just pray. Lord, we give you praise and thanks for your word. Your word is truth. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. From now on then, we do not know anyone in a purely human way, even if we have known Christ in a purely human way. Yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, 14, about 14 uh, years ago, as uh, uh, Pastor Steve mentioned, um, God called my wife and I, uh, Jenny, uh, at that time with one little one, Naomi. She was about nine months old when we left to Canada, where I was uh, initially for five years serving in the area of Christian apologetics with um, uh, a man from the United States, well, originally from India, Dr. Ravi Zacharias. And shortly after that, uh, after about five years doing that, the Lord called us to plant a church in downtown Toronto. And by the grace of God, and I'm saying this because I want you to know that as I talk about the golden thread of God's mission this morning, that I have to some degree been involved in it. I think sometimes it's important to know that those who are uh, saying something or talking about a particular thing, especially when it comes to things like mission, know a little bit about it in their own experience. And... Uh, through one really miracle after another, God uh, gave us two uh, facilities in the downtown of Toronto. And uh, from a group of 20 people meeting in a front room about uh, seven and a half years ago, um, the church has grown to about 350 now. And uh, God's given us a school, a classical Christian school, which has been running for two years. And uh, we have an institute for 
It's a, really a Christian think tank to help people think about the mission. What is God's calling in our lives? How do we apply biblical faith to every aspect of life? That's called the Ezra Institute. And um, in recent years, because I have a pastoral team now in Canada, uh, especially over the last year, I've been back in England quite a bit, uh, working with Christian Concern as the director of the Wilberforce Academy, which uh, happens in Cambridge uh, annually. And the purpose of the Wilberforce Academy is to talk to young people uh, who are going into, uh, who are studying or young professionals who are in the public space to think about God's mission and what it means for them in their vocation. And so I want to talk this morning about the, the foundation, the basis for all of that. Steve, when I, uh, Steve and I were talking on the phone as I was sat on my deck in the 30 degrees of Toronto's uh, early summer um, the other day. Um, uh, a, a bit about uh, this morning, and uh, he, he did want me to say something at least about uh, the, the time in Toronto. And what I can say is that by the grace of God, through the work of God's people, the service of God's people, we're touching families and churches uh, through the school. I don't think we've, we've never had a baptism service where we haven't had multiple candidates for baptism, and usually those services are twice a year as we are simply trying to be faithful to what God's word says. And Toronto is not dissimilar to any major European city. There is, in fact, the church is much weaker in downtown Toronto, in Toronto itself, than it would be here in Britain, in the major metropolises. It's a real challenge. But the gospel is power. It's the power of God for salvation. And what we're doing simply today, wherever we are, is participating in God's mission. The Bible was a book written by a missionary God, inspired by a missionary God, written by missionaries for missionaries about the mission. And so the gospel is fundamentally that golden thread, the kingdom of God as it runs throughout history. That's what I want to talk a bit about. When we speak about the gospel being new creatures in Christ and this appeal that God is making through us for, to be reconciled to God, gospel, as you know, literally means good news. Good news. But good news without a context is incomprehensible. News can only be good in relation to a broader story. Perhaps you're given the good news, for example, that the battle is ended, or the baby has arrived, or the fire is out, or the house has been sold. Those are headlines. Now, in order to understand those headlines, to be good news, you would have to have an understanding of the broader context. After all, if the news, the house has been sold, was actually the house you were hoping to buy, that's not good news, is it? Um, if, uh, in fact, in all of those uh, circumstances that I've just highlighted, whether it's about war or pregnancy or sickness or family or whatever it may be, there has to be a broader context in which the headline could be understood to be good news. Now, as Christians, at the heart of God's mission is the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. And so as Christians, we're centered around the gospel, the good news. But we, we center ourselves around that gospel increasingly in a context where the, uh, where in, where the context of that headline, the headlines that we're used to giving to people, has been lost where they no longer understand the context. 
Most of us believers understand the gospel to be the news that salvation is offered by Jesus Christ through death for our sin and his resurrection from the grave. We're rescued from judgment. The way is opened to heaven. And that is right as far as it goes. But it doesn't actually go far enough. It's, uh, it's true. It's necessary to say that about the gospel, but it's not sufficient. We need more than that if we're going to understand the mission of God. The gospel of God. And in this sense, there's a truncated, I think, formulation of the gospel that we have in the contemporary Western world today that is a headline version of the gospel that is coming to people without a context. And that makes it very difficult to understand. Personal salvation from guilt and the corruption of sin is significant. It's central, but there is more to the gospel than that. The gospel actually doesn't start with the cross or the resurrection. They may be high points. The gospel starts actually with creation. The good news of a good world that God has made. And man's fall into sin as part of the necessary context of the gospel. That's the plot line of God's mission. And I've called it today the road from Eden. For this to be one of these threads that you've been thinking about. Now, to comprehend the full scope and meaning of the gospel and its significance in our lives, Christ, we're told, of course, is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's not just the end. Uh, We mustn't relegate the message of the gospel and salvation merely to this brief earthly appearance of Jesus as a short intervention in history, as though that's all it, all it is, and we're now trying to be spiritual as we wait for Jesus to come again. Those are, the, the cross and the resurrection are major movements in the mission of God, but they are not the whole symphony. Some might object that uh, this process of expounding God's mission is, is making the good old-time gospel, which is simple, overcomplicated. I mean, isn't it just, you know, Jesus died for you and we're on our way to heaven and you can have your sins forgiven? But I don't think there is actually anything as, any such thing as a simple gospel in that sense. Uh, rather, I think when we truncate the gospel, uh, we actually to some degree pervert it and we, we pull the teeth of the gospel because it loses its force without the context, loses its force in people's lives. Jesus died for you and has a plan for your life is not the gospel. It's a part of it, but that isn't the gospel. It's only when we cease to view the gospel actually as purely individualistic and in this sort of reductionistic fashion that the full beauty and glory of God's mission and God's calling upon our lives becomes clear. And this really began to uh, transform me about 15 or so years ago when, by the grace of God, he began to enable me to understand something of this. Now, the gospel, of course, the good news of the kingdom isn't just an abstract thing. It's not an abstract idea. um, It's not a philosophy. It's not a theory. It's not simply either a personal spiritual experience. That would be romanticism. I mean, it involves a personal experience, and it involves a philosophy of life, but it can't be reduced to either of those things. Neither is the gospel adequately expounded simply by my personal testimony, as though 
it were just something autobiographical. Because I, I mean, I interact with a lot of religious people of different religions who have their own religious story, have their own testimony of experiencing light and gooeyness and general attachment to nature or some higher sense of spirituality. Obviously, we wouldn't say that they have the gospel. Now, in its fullest sense, the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of God's kingdom is the backdrop, is the stage from which all of life is lived in every aspect. And that's true, actually, of the believer and the non-believer alike, whether they realize it or not. The non-believer is involved in the gospel of the kingdom. They may not understand it, but they are inescapably involved in it. For one, the gospel of Christ is the savor of life. To those who are being saved, to the others, it's the savor of death. So before we encounter the person of Jesus and his specific work of satisfaction for sin, we first have to recognize that we're human beings made in God's image, alive in God's creation, in a meta story of kingship and justice and righteousness and redemption. That there's a big picture to be grasped. And the creation itself as a necessary foundation of the story is good. In fact, everything that was made was pronounced very good. That's the first bit of good news in Scripture. There's a good creation. It's inherently good. It's fallen, it's broken, but it's inherently good. And this means that the, the material creation, the world in which we live, the created order, is not why we need to preach salvation. It's not like we're souls trapped in a fallen body and God's mission is to get us out of our bodies into an ethereal spiritual world. That's Greek philosophy, that's not Christianity. The created order is not the cause of our disquiet, it's not our basic problem. It's not the problem that needs to be, it's not creation that needs to be overcome as a drag on your existence. Or if only the created world wasn't such a burden to me, then I could be spiritual, then I could really be a Christian. No, we live in God's good world. And you know, this is the only world there is. This is the one he's restoring, redeeming, renewing. And if any man be in Christ today, he is a new creature. The new creation has already broken into this fallen creation. We'll come to that in a moment. No, it's the various... There are various Indo-European worldviews that have suggested the body is a prison for the soul or the material world is a lower debased order and salvation is grasped to be liberated from the body, an idea of pure spirit, some abstract realm. That's not Christianity. From whence then comes the disquiet in the human heart, the longing, the disappointments, the struggle that everybody has as if it's not creation itself? Well... Scripture also tells us as a context for God's mission that the world is broken. And theologians call it the fall. And I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't already know here. It's just a reminder. But God's good creation in that Edenic order with our first parents was disturbed. It was disrupted. It fell into ruin. And that fall wasn't from spirit into matter. 
It wasn't metaphysical in that sense. It was from righteousness and holiness and godly dominion in covenant and immediate relationship with God into idolatry. From the worship of the creator to the worship of creation, as Paul tells us in Romans 1. That was the truth exchange that took place. It led to a worship exchange. Then actually Paul tells us in Romans 1 leads to a sexual exchange. That's not the subject for today. The fall was ethical. It was moral, fundamentally. And so that means that the problem is with the human heart, fundamentally. And the heart, which is the seat of our being, out of the heart flow the issues of life, affects every single aspect of life. It affects your intellectual life. It affects your scholarship. It affects your family life. It affects your marriage It affects how you think about your vocation. It affects law and politics and education. And absolutely everything is fundamentally determined by the direction of the heart. That's why we need a new heart. That's why there's no neutral space in the whole universe. There's no atom that is independent of God anywhere. But man was cut off from his proper calling. To be God's vice regent, to be God's dominion servant in the earth. And so, while the words of Ecclesiastes, there is now a season and a time for every matter under heaven, there's now a time to be born and to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted, to kill and to heal, to weep and to laugh, to mourn and to dance, and so forth. There are beginnings, but there are also painful endings. And this is what leads to the present intermixed experience that people have. Trauma and tragedy has entered the human condition. Disquiet now shares space with delight and repose and so forth. It's the human condition. So we cannot actually talk about our lives, our desires and fears, our human experience without reference to the inescapable reality of time and history and the traumatic nature of it as it confronts us in a fallen and a broken world. We can't elude the world and you can't escape the world. We all live in it and there is a time for every matter and for every work. Scripture is plain that in the beginning in Eden, there was nothing, though, about time that caused us distress. One uh, commentator on the book of Ecclesiastes, Zach Eswin, puts it this way. He says, time was like a friend who allowed us to spend a weekend of retreat in his home. Within this provision, we could recover and live out our purpose. Time was a living room for company, a hallway for movement, a bedroom for lovemaking and rest, a table for food, a yard for work and play, a path for reflection. Time was beautiful, a friend to humanity as, it, as both it and they cohabited the God-given world. And now time seems to hunt you down and be a source of distress with innumerable pressures and so forth. It exposes our boredom. It rots the rafters of our security. It tarnishes the finish on all our best experiences. Eden's now out of reach. But we remember it still, somewhere in here. Every person remembers it still somewhere. 
God has set eternity in the human heart. And even though it's kind of fading like a picture postcard, it's still there in our hearts. And now time has become the theater of God's judgment. This is all part of God's mission in history. It is the context of the gospel. But thank God there's more to the gospel than the good creation leaving us in a fallen though condition. In fact, God's mission rests on an agreement from eternity past. The Bible says he was, Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And out of that agreement, God makes that first promise in Eden, even as he was cursing creation. We see in Genesis 3, verse 15, that first promise of the gospel, right at the beginning of Scripture, that the seed of the woman... The one born of woman shall bruise the serpent's head. That there is one coming who is going to turn this around. And as C.S. Lewis put it, death itself will start working backwards. Theologians call that the proto-evangelion or the first announcement of the gospel. Right there at the beginning. And in the midst of his tears and sorrow and disquiet and tragedy, the ancient suffering patriarch Job was nonetheless able to look forward in hope because of this promise. And when he tells us in Job 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. So right there in the Old Testament, way back, probably around the time of Abraham, there was this assurance of the Redeemer and the redemption of our bodies, of our flesh. Who is this Redeemer? Well, we know it's Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4, time has waited long enough. God sends forth his Son. But it's here we have to pause, because this Jesus comes with a context. The gospel is first disclosed repeatedly in the Old Testament. God's mission is disclosed. The kingdom of God is disclosed first in the Old Testament. And it's in terms of that prophetic witness that Jesus himself understands God's mission. In Isaiah 52, which Paul the Apostle quotes, and in Romans 10, 15, we read, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel. Good news. The prophet is actually reminding the oppressed covenant people that, he will one, that one day there will be a full outworking of deliverance and salvation by the might of their king who will take his place Verse 10 of Isaiah 52, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What the gospel actually sets forth is that God is king of all the nations and the entire earth will witness his great salvation in the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, that is why it's important not to trifle with the name of Jesus Christ. Or rush too quickly into the life of Jesus, because Christ is a translation 
of the word Messiah. Messiah, the anointed one who is ordained and sent by God on a mission from God to a particular purpose. And of course, our our mission is participating in his mission. The Old Testament first speaks of the Messiah. When it speaks of the Messiah, the name Jesus is not yet known. He was announced as Messiah before he historically came as Jesus Christ. And this is important because the good news doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. This is context. This is kingdom context. Even in the Gospels, we're not actually given a life of Jesus. It's not like a modern biography. For many of the details of his life are not, that, are not too great a concern to the gospel writers. They, they, we call them the silent years. We don't get a full biography. And that's for the simple reason that Jesus cannot be separated from the Old Testament, from the salvation history out of which he came according to God's eternal plan and mission in the earth. Klaus Schlilder puts it this way. He says, no one is able to characterize the name of Jesus in a faithful way as long as it has not become clear to him from the whole of Scripture what Jesus came to accomplish as the Christ and what he therefore as God's office bearer par excellence has to do in and for and also with the cosmos. The gospel is about, God's mission is about what he's doing, not just in my heart, although he is doing something there. It's about what he's doing with the entire cosmos, in every aspect. It's not simply that what Christ has come to do for us that counts. And so often we get way too self-absorbed. We get way too concerned with ourselves. What's God doing for me? How's he going to do it for me? The gospel is about what Christ is doing for the whole cosmos. Through us. And it's in that that he does something for us. Paul says of God the Son, the Messiah, for from him and through him and to him are all things. What does that leave out? For from him and through him and to him are all things. He dominates, directs, governs all the ages in the scheme of the gospel because God is working out a plan and a purpose for all history that is summed up in Christ. So Jesus presents himself to us in his own light in Scripture that manifests he is prophet, priest, and king and has come to reconcile everything that was alienated back to himself. That means that you and I can't construct a Jesus mission or a Jesus salvation of our own imagination. And such missions proliferate today, even in the church, that bear no resemblance to the Messiah because they're not rooted in Christ as office bearer, prophet, priest, and king. We have the positive thinking psychological Jesus who's there just to help you think positive name and claim the right things. We have the Marxist liberationist Jesus who's simply there to be a 
moral example, he brings social justice to the oppressed masses. You have the hippie pacifist Jesus, who's an eco-warrior. You have the feminist progressivist Jesus, who is inclusive of everything. And it's precisely because we can only have Jesus Christ, the office bearer in the history of redemption, that there is only one true gospel. Without this context, you make Jesus into whatever you want. Jesus can be manipulated in that sense. The gospel can be manipulated to mean really what I want it to mean. And so is going on in the church today. If you want to know why in downtown Toronto, you know, Toronto used to be called Toronto the Good, the city of churches. Every street you get, every neighborhood you enter, there are like four church buildings. Most of those today, many of them stand empty. Many of those are condominiums now, cafeterias. Why? Well, because there were people who said in the 20th century, we've got a better idea about the mission of Jesus. We've got a better idea about who Jesus really is. And that will bring more people into the church. Wrong. All the distortion of Scripture and of the mission of Jesus Christ and his kingdom has ever done, ever, in the history of the church is empty it. Because it is without power, it is without truth, it is without the ministry and working of the Holy Spirit. You see, in Jesus we have two names joined because we have two natures joined. His singular office as anointed one was to do battle against Satan and all the works of sin, death, and oppression. Jesus. I seem to have lost my back. Good. Two distinct natures. His office was to be the second Adam. You know that that's what the New Testament calls him? The second Adam. The last Adam. To establish a community of people, this time not of one blood as a living soul, but from one spirit. So if we're to understand Christ's name and by it his office and thereby the gospel, we actually have to go back, interestingly enough, to the first Adam. Because we're told that he's a type of Jesus Christ. In fact, Adam is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Luke's gospel. That's quite important. The first Adam, who was made by God for a purpose, for a mission, to be an office bearer, a vice regent in creation with a rule and dominion in God's world in terms of God's word and purpose, it was that office that was to determine our first parents in their relationship with God. He was appointed, to put it in New Testament terms, to be God's fellow worker. God's fellow worker. Our first parents' work in Eden was quite literally liturgy. Do you know what the word liturgy means? I know sometimes in you know, circles where we're not in the mainline church, we don't like the word liturgy. Liturgy means public work. Public work. Work in service to the kingdom of God, which is over all the cosmos, includes men and angels, 
And the opening chapters of Genesis gives us their basic task under God. They were to turn creation into a God-honoring culture or kingdom. That was the calling of our first parent. That's the calling of man to turn creation into a God-honoring kingdom or culture. Cult, culture, cult, worship, culture, cultivation. To cultivate all things in terms of the kingdom of God. The rule of God, the word of God. The world does not come pre-shrink-wrapped and microwavable. You have to do something with it. You have to work it, to keep it, to care for it, to develop it. I was going around, uh, it's like I've still got half an hour left. Um, <clears throat> was it about 15 minutes? Um, <clears throat> I was taking my son recently around Toronto, in Toronto's uh, major car show. And at this car show, there were you know, vintage cars. There was a vintage car section, which is where all the best cars are. And then there were um, you know, modern cars, the latest cars, packed with technology. I mean, you know, $100,000 vehicles. That's you know, 60,000 pounds-ish. And uh, as I was going around, I was struck by the fact that every single thing in that showroom came out of the ground. You ever thought about that? All that technology, all those materials came out of the ground. That's culture. To cultivate, to turn creation into a culture. The type of culture it's going to be is governed by the direction of the human heart. And God's calling, God's mission was to say, take my creation. It's not pre-shrink wrapped. I've started with a small garden area. And now you go and have dominion and and rule in terms of my word and purpose and turn it all into my kingdom. That's the gospel. So often we beat ourselves up. We think, you know, well, I haven't wanted anybody to Christ this month. Therefore, I'm not fulfilling the gospel. If you are being a faithful husband, a faithful mother, a diligent worker at your vocation, you're obeying God's word and you're bringing all things into submission to Christ, you are serving the kingdom of God and are successful already. You see, that's the, the Greek thought that comes in repeatedly, which is, well, our calling, God's mission, is to snatch souls from the burning. That's not the mission of God. In fact, heaven, the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven into the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth, as it is in heaven. That's the mission. Eden was not an ending point. It was just a beginning point. It wasn't an end in itself. Man was bound to serve God's purpose, to kneel down and presently before his maker with the whole cosmos prepared by his own hand under God's providence in a, that he's culturally engaged in terms of God's Sabbath into which he has to enter. That's our calling. We present all things to God. At the end, we bring everything, all our cultural activity to God in loving service to glorify the Father, but Adam and Eve rebelled against that calling. Instead, they went about the task of unculture, if I can put it that way. 
of disintegration. They abused their office and our race fell. Instead of seeking authority and rule and dominion and cultivation in terms of their own, in terms of God's purposes, in terms of their own end, their own purpose, to serve themselves as their own God. And then the tools of culture became more important than God's kingdom. That's when the cars and the houses and everything else become more important than the rule of God himself. We worship creation, something in it, rather than the creator. And this resulted in the disintegration, disordering, distortion, dereliction, demunition, and perhaps a few other Ds, but I couldn't think of them, of all of human activity. As such, man is not only alienated from God, he seeks to alienate the world from its God. Do you see? Man who is alienated from God, therefore wants to alienate all of his creation from him. Our calling is to reconcile it to him. Satan's mission is to alienate everything from God. Ours is reconciliation of all things to God. The world wants to separate what God joins. And it wants to join what God separates. You want a cultural example? The world wants to destroy marriage, to separate what God has joined. But it also wants to join what God has separated, male and female, and deny God's basic binary distinctions in creation. It's all about alienating creation from the creator. God must have nothing to do with the real world here, for man must build his own paradise in rebellion against God's verdict. He denies the unity of fact and meaning, and he insists on separate parts severed from the whole of God's creation. He doesn't want a universe. He wants a multiverse. He doesn't want unity under God. He wants diversity, chaos, disorder. In the prolongation of time, though, after the fall, gospel history starts to differentiate these two cities, the seed of the woman seed of the serpent in terms of an antithesis. Do you know why you find evangelism difficult? Do you know why winning people to Christ is difficult? It's not because you're a bad evangelist. Probably. It's because there is an antithesis. Human heart is darkened. Needs to be resurrected. Needs to be made new. So man is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. There's only one creation or nature, but there's a twofold use of it. There's only one earth, but there's two visions of mission for developing and shaping it. The one cultural urge basic to, to man, there's only one cultural urge basic to all human beings, and that's some kind of dominion, but it has two distinct forms of cultural striving. And in the midst of man's futile efforts to remake himself as divine, In the timing of God, God sent forth the seed of the woman, the Messiah, the second Adam, to be the true office bearer. What does that really mean? Well, Christ comes and he's the fully obedient son. He's the truly obedient servant. He's an Adam who doesn't rebel. He's an Israel that doesn't disobey. And he's redeeming 
He does this through this work of obedience in the gospel. He restores God's order to bring all things back to God through redeeming a new people, a new humanity, to serve him in concrete life, to obey in every function, to fulfill God's expressed will. Christ comes to make it possible for us to fulfill again our calling, to give back to him his world flourishing. Now, I get excited about this mission. Because you know what it means? It means in every aspect of your life, every aspect of it is invested with meaning and significance. Everything that you do. Everything. Literally everything. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And this was a judicial work because man's problems we've seen was ethical, not metaphysical. And redemption wasn't committed to, and judgment wasn't committed into the hands of a philosopher who shares with us an abstract scheme for escaping reality. No, in life he fulfills the role Jesus does of prophet, priest, and king, just as Adam was called to be in the garden. And by his atoning death and resurrection, he purchases the right of renewal of a new people. That's you and me. Recommissioned now as prophets, priests, and kings in God's sanctuary, which is the earth, the whole earth, the whole cosmos. It's God's temple. Just as Adam and Eve were set in it to minister as priests, we are now in Jesus Christ. We are his co-workers. And this is why the New Testament speaks of the gospel as the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, that he is son of God. He is Lord Messiah. He's the true office bearer who has invaded history to recall us to this task, the culture or kingdom of God. Let me wrap this up. We see in this perspective, I think, the exhilarating scope of God's mission. The exhilarating scope of the gospel. Not just about me going out and trying to win a few people in Toronto to accept Jesus as their savior. That's part of it. That's just a tiny part of it. It's an important part of it. It's just a part of it. The frustration and futility of time to which sin subjects us is being transformed into fruitfulness by Christ's work. The gospel knows nothing of escape from the world, but only service as priests for its renewal. And the gospel sweep uh, sweeps us up into this great symphony where we as his image bearers in every aspect of our daily lives, our vocations, everything that's been dominated by sin is now being transformed by this good news. This is God's mission. My colleague in California, Dr. Andrew Sandlin, he puts it this way, listen closely and just endure five more minutes and I'll be done. Since God's work in Jesus Christ on the cross is designed to redeem everything presently under the domain of sin, and since this includes creation, creation should be redeemed. This means that all elements of culture, which is man's creative interaction with creation, including money and food and technology and education and the arts and politics, presently burdened under the weight of sin, are designed to be redeemed. Salvation isn't liberation from creation. It's liberation from sin. The gospel is calculated to redeem not just individuals, but all human life and culture and creation. The good news is that God in Jesus Christ has dealt and is dealing decisively with the problem of sin and gradually reinstalling his righteousness. The gospel is that everything wrong in the world, God is setting right. Now that's the gospel. That's the mission. 
We have seen the key to grasping this reality is the journey from Eden. We need to, I believe, that the great problem in the church in the West today is this truncation of the gospel. The loss of context. And then we wonder why people don't comprehend us. They can't understand us. Adam's sonship is a reflection of Christ's sonship. Adam is a type of Christ because he points to the one who is the perfect dominion man who calmed the seas and commanded the storm and exercised total power over the creation. He's, Christ is the true cultural man. He came and exercised total mastery over the creation. And he, through the gospel, restores us to this co-dominion over the earth. You know, there is a much-neglected doctrine in Scripture, the, the ascension and the session of Jesus Christ. All too often we leave the gospel with the resurrection. But the ascension and the session of Christ is really about where Jesus Christ is today in this great symphony of God's mission in history, the Alpha and the Omega The session of Christ is the reality that today there is a human being, a man, at the right hand of God, physically and locally present with God. Do you know what that means? Human nature, the human person, has been so transformed in the person of Christ. This is all part of the total salvation of Jesus Christ. Remember, incarnation, resurrection, ascension, the second coming, they're all joined, they're all linked. The final judgment, Christ's total victory, he must reign till he's put all his enemies under his feet. But Christ is now seated at the right hand of God and he's making his enemies his footstool. That's what scripture tells us. And what this means for us, because in Jesus Christ, the resurrected office bearer in heaven, a man sits in session as a member of the triune headship, lordship, warring against evil, sitting in judgment over all things, the first fruits of a new creation. And that's why scripture says that today we are seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ. We share his rule. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 23 tells us. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, Ephesians 2, 6. And we participate now in his rule and victory. The church father, Chrysostom, he put it this way. Of this exaltation, he said, we who appeared unworthy of earth have been led up today into the heavens. We who were not worthy of preeminence below have ascended to the kingdom above. We have scaled the heavens. We have attained the royal throne. And that nature on whose account the cherubim guarded paradise today sits above the cherubim. You see that the first Adam, Christ, the last Adam, we in Christ are in this exalted state called to victory in Jesus Christ through his kingdom. Now, I'm not making this up. It's all in the Bible. We just need to put the pieces together in terms of what God's mission is all about. And we intercede today with God against evil and injustice, and we are assured of total victory. And the scripture says, he will see the travail of his soul and 
will be satisfied. That's the cosmic theater of redemption that you and I as Christians today are part of. There is a human being today in heaven sitting at the right hand of God with total authority and by faith we are in Christ. And so God is making his appeal through us to all the earth be reconciled to God. We are his ambassadors. An ambassador is a representative of the crown or a high commissioner. And the calling is to restore all things to God, to reconcile all things to God. That is the gospel. We inherit Jesus' story of relating to culture. He's the model man. And we inherit his story. That is the gospel. That's the mandate. That is the nature of the Great Commission. That is the nature of the mission. And one day, friends, the curse will be ended. Redemption will reach its full summation and consummation. And we shall reign with him forever. As the poet put it, new Eden comes, all else passes. The hills grown old with time shall see their youth again. The cold stone walls of Jericho around the heart of ancient man shall fall before the trumpets blow as victors seize the land. The time that comes beats with the loudest drums. Creation has but one conclusion. And in my conclusion, which should have been done a few minutes ago, but I know this is a church where the Spirit is allowed to lead. So I've got a few more minutes. Um, there is a table at the back there, Christian Concerns table. Part of the mission, the cosmic mission, is to ensure that the church enjoys freedom. This was put on your chair. The counter-extremism strategy in, uh, of the government presently would radically restrict the church's freedom. We're already seeing people losing their jobs and being prevented from preaching and teaching as though they have violated some aspect of human rights. And <clears throat> these measures would be intrusive of this church, inspecting this church and its message and its teaching. So have a read of that. Second of all, if, you want, if you're a young person here between 18 and, say, 35, and you are... Uh, vocationally involved in some way in the public space, in education, politics, law, some in the arts, media, in some way, and you want to actually, you would like to take time out, a week out, to learn more actually about what God's mission really is all about. The Wilberforce Academy happens in Cambridge, at one of the Cambridge University colleges, annually in September. It's a scholarship program. So apart from a registration fee, it doesn't cost you costs us. We raise the money for it. If you would like to apply, there are still some places open for this September. There would certainly be places open for next September. If you actually want to get excited about what the kingdom of God, the mission of God really is all about, I would really encourage you to consider that. And if you want to learn more in depth about what I've said this morning, my latest tome, The Mission of God, is available on the book stand. Thank you, Steve.